0: Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. I'm pleased to welcome Audio-Technica back as presenting partner for Season 4 of Let's Talk About Sects. Their support has meant a lot, and their equipment is a huge reason why the show sounds great. Be sure to check out their Creator Pack if you're looking at content creation yourself, and if you're not a producer, get onto their home audio setups to get your home entertainment on point. Find out more at audio-technica.com.au As he was about to turn 17, Remy Attig was keen to get away from his parents' fracturing marriage and ready for something to give his life purpose. The Master's Commission program seemed like just the thing to set him up for a life of travel and spreading the word of God. Instead, it ran him ragged, instilled fear, built on his internalised homophobia, and set him up for unhealthy relationships and trust issues. In hindsight, he believes that the Masters Commission was a cult, Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we continue, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Today's episode, be sure to stick around after the credits for a couple of exciting pieces of Let's Talk About Sects-related news. According to the website of the Masters Commission International Network, the Masters Commission discipleship training began in Phoenix, Arizona in 1984, with trainees devoting a year of their life to the program. Quote, Master's Commission was born in the heart of Larry Kerrichuk as a place where people of all walks of life could come, grow in their relationship with Christ, and lay a biblical foundation. Upon that foundation, a lifetime of service to God could be built and lived out. Larry Kerrychuk worked at the Phoenix First Assembly of God, which is now known as Dream City Church. It's a megachurch that was recently in the news for publicizing its new air purification system That claimed to kill 99.9% of COVID within 10 minutes, installed in preparation for a Trump rally in June 2020. The fraudulent claims resulted in a cease and desist letter from the Arizona Attorney General to the church and the product manufacturer. Larry went to Idaho State University on a football scholarship and played in the Canadian Football League between 1969 and 1972 for the Edmonton Eskimos and Winnipeg Blue Bombers. He started the Athletes International Ministry in 1984 as an outreach program for the athletic community. I'm unclear as to whether there's any connection between the Masters Commission program and the Athletes International Ministry, but both appear to have been started by Larry in the same year. I'm not actually going to spend a lot of time on Larry Kerrychuk, as I've heard nothing to indicate he's much involved with the Masters Commission program today. The program was successful enough in its expansion for the Master's Commission International Network to be established by the turn of the century. Quote, God poured his blessing on Master's Commission and gave opportunity for multiplication in churches across the country and around the world. As the program spread from church to church, the need arose for a network to be established to preserve the integrity and purity of heart with which this discipleship training program was created. Here there's a bit of conflicting information. The MCIN website says, In 1999, a group of Masters Commission Directors from across the nation held a meeting at the annual Masters Commission Discipleship Conference and formed the Masters Commission International Network. Meanwhile, a profile of MCIN Director Lord Ziegler on the Jim Backer Show's website says, In 1997, he founded the Master's Commission International Network, a worldwide network of over 90 affiliated programs and thousands of graduates with one mission, to know God and make him known. Lloyd Ziegler appears to have been a real driving force behind the program's growth, and the Master's Commission USA website says that he and his wife Chris believed that changed people change people, which is an interesting twist on the more familiar expression, hurt people hurt people. The churches that the program was spreading throughout, like Larry's and Lloyd Ziegler's, belonged to the Assemblies of God, a worldwide grouping of churches that form the largest Pentecostal denomination, and which we covered a little in Season 3, Episode 7. It's the denomination to which Australia's current Prime Minister Scott Morrison subscribes, and that from which the Living Word Fellowship founder John Robert Stevens was ousted for his unorthodox teachings. The various national church groupings within the denomination are autonomous, while the international fellowship members share certain beliefs around such things as speaking in tongues and divine healing. The MCIN website currently lists 52 different affiliate, pioneer and international programs across the USA and around the world. It's quite possible that some of these programs aren't in any way problematic, and have good leadership with former students who can speak of fulfilling experiences. Remy Attig's experiences in the Master's Commission were not that. Remy Attig grew up attending an Assembly of God church in Clearwater, Florida. He'd heard about the Master's Commission through his church, and it sounded really appealing.
1: So the way it was presented was that it was kind of a traveling theater group that also gave you a training program to become a minister in a two year span instead of going to Bible college, which took four years. And so like the element of theater and travel and things, this was exciting, right? It's it's like, it's like, I don't know, like growing up and joining the circus.
0: <laughs> Remy's parents had been having relationship issues for a couple of years, and he was keen to get away.
1: I'd always wanted to go um, to Latin America, and I viewed uh, Master's Commission as sort of, I guess, um, with the deterioration of my parents' relationship, it seemed like a place that would be welcoming to me and that was dynamic, and it was um, this training program, so I would, you know, be able to learn about um, the Bible better. I would be able to sort of get connections to go and live in Latin America and presumably continue doing the same type of um, Christian, uh, outreach. And, um, it was dynamic. I mean, at the time you had these really exciting leaders who were doing things like, uh, and this is, I mean, in right around 2000. And so they're filming their own, uh, filming and editing these videos, uh, that seemed really interesting and kind of reminiscent, I guess, as like, a um, a type of, MTV sort of feel to it, um, particularly because in the tradition I grew up in, I wasn't really supposed to be watching MTV. So it kind of seemed like this sort of um, the radical, like Christian way of kind of being cool, I guess. And it just seemed like that's what everybody in my church was saying. Like, oh, you really should do this thing. Like, it's really going to position you. You're going to learn a lot. You know, this is like what God wants of you. So I decided to sign up um, and um, I started off I guess I did two years um with master's commission.
0: A new master's commission program had just been started up at his church, so Remy didn't have to go elsewhere to attend. He joined up for the first year when he was seventeen.
1: Some people would go away like it was a university type program, but I actually did it within my own church um and I was the first year that they had started the program there. And that was an offshoot of two other programs that were part of this sort of genealogy. So our leader had um, left, had done several years in Birmingham, Alabama, and then went to Los Angeles to set up a master's commission there and was there for a couple of years and then came to um, where I was, which is Clearwater, Florida, um, which I'm sure features prominently with certain other groups on your podcast. <laughs>
0: When Remy started, he was one of about 20 people entering the first year of the program at the Clearwater Church. And along with those who had taken a year or two elsewhere already, there were probably around 30 people in his master's commission all up. At 17, Remy was the youngest, with the eldest being around 22.
1: So basically the structure of the organization was, um, there was this leader who was a a pastor of... Uh, was hired by the church, uh, the Assembly of God Church, in which it was housed. Um, And he was this dynamic sort of maybe he was, I think, 26 maybe at the time. Um, And there was, as far as I could tell, pretty much no oversight from the church over what he did. But his control over the organization and over our individual lives was almost complete. Like whatever he wanted, uh, we did. And under him, there was, you know, um, third-year student or students, depending on the year. And they had done several years of this, either with us or elsewhere. Um, and those people were really viewed as the leaders. I mean, they could do no wrong. Um, this, the next set down, there were second-year students who, you know, were definitely put in a leadership role. And then the first-year students, we were really sort of the grunt workers, I guess, the peons of the group,
0: the rules changed around what you could and couldn't do depending on which year of the program you were in.
1: So first-year students, for example, were not allowed to date, were not allowed to be in um, groups of ideally um, no smaller than five people, uh, with certain exceptions, groups of three people, um, if you needed to go grocery shopping or this kind of thing was allowed. And as you went through the second and third year and whatever, you were allowed more autonomy, um, allowed to have... Um, relationships with members of the opposite sex, um, et cetera. Uh, but there was no other... Um, so this was within our Clearwater Masters Commission. Uh, and then as a larger organization, we would go um, once a year, everybody for, would go to Phoenix, which is where it had originally uh, started. And we would, it would be thousands of us um, doing... Um, workshops and things together in Phoenix. Uh, And that was once a year. I think it was in February.
0: On the Master's Commission USA website, there's a pretty detailed application form, which includes fields for uploading a photo, T-shirt and ring size, health information, how you plan on paying the tuition fees, church details and questions like, what is your definition of a servant? And how do your parents slash family feel about you coming to Master's Commission?
1: I did have to apply. Um, I don't know that it was a very significant um, or rigorous uh, application process. Um, Since it was at my church and I had been involved with my church for a long time by that point, um, like I wasn't worried about getting accepted. Um, It did cost money as well. Um, So I don't remember how much it costs at this point, to be honest. Um, I want to say it was probably somewhere around $4,000 or $5,000 for uh, the nine months at a time that I signed up. Um, and within that, though, was my housing cost. Uh, so they had a property that they um, ha- that they gave us to live in. And then some of my food, uh, I think my lunches were included um, every day. Um, and then my dinners and my breakfast were my responsibility. Uh, But but I couldn't work. I couldn't do other work during that process. So I believe it was mostly my grandparents uh, who paid for this experience.
0: There's a tuition breakdown on the Masters Commission USA website, and it lists first-year fees of $3,000 for program costs, $2,650 for housing costs, and $850 for curriculum, to total $6,500. In second year, the program cost comes down to $1,900, so the total is $5,400. When I was studying at university, I was fortunate enough to be able to live with my parents and worked a part-time job to cover day-to-day expenses. I wondered how students could afford to take the Master's Commission program.
1: Um, I guess part of the thing that resonates... Um, that what I've heard other people talking about is this idea that, but if you're dedicated, you'll find a way. Right. And, and we hear that like from so many groups, so many people you've talked to, it's kind of like, if, if you really believe it uh, and also you, you'll ask friends, you'll ask, you know, church members wherever you're from to give, you know, maybe $50 or maybe $20 and, you know, you fundraise your way to be able to afford this. And I would also, for example, since I couldn't work, during the time, like my summer break and my, uh, we did have a short winter break. I was working at, you know, seasonal labor to be able to afford my groceries the rest of the year because I wouldn't be able to afford them otherwise.
0: I was interested to get a picture of what these fees went towards in terms of the course structure and asked Remy if he could run me through a typical day and week during his first year of master's commission.
1: Sure. So on uh, a typical day, week we would wake up uh most weekdays uh we had to be at the church like in the church at seven o'clock in the morning and we would pray until eight and this was like individual time and the expectation was that you were kind of listening to your own music reading the bible whatever on your own um you had to sign in and put what time it was and they would mark you tardy if you were late and then you know if you were late sufficient number of times you would have to work on your day off.
0: Monday was the students' day off in the Master's Commission program.
1: That was mostly actually Tuesday to Saturday. So we would work doing various things. We would go to pray in the morning. Then we would usually theoretically have some sort of a class, but a lot of times we would just wait around for an hour or two until somebody could come meet us. A lot of times we would also be vacuuming the church or we would be doing some kind of similar project. Sometimes people would be building uh, props for the church's plays or or what have you. And so Tuesdays, usually we would be done uh, a bit earlier. So probably about six or seven o'clock. Wednesdays, we would be the same thing, but we would have church at night. So we'd get off for about an hour. And by the time we get home after cleaning up at night from Wednesday night church, it would be about 10 o'clock. So any, you know, shower, whatever you need to do. Then on Thursday, again, up at seven o'clock, same kind of thing as Tuesday. So we'd be around, and sometimes there would be evening events. Quite often there would be evening events um, that we would be expected to attend. So we might finish at six or seven, but actually need to be back, you know, an hour later and, and work a bit longer. Friday, Saturday, same general model. Saturdays, we usually had a bit of time off. Uh, Not a lot. The expectation was that we were around, we were helping. Sundays, we would have to be at church in the morning. Still, all of these days waking up and getting there at 7 o'clock first for Bible study. Sundays, we would usually be expected to go to our MC parents' house for lunch if they invited us, Uh, and then we'd be back for Bible study and any prep work in the evening, We'd finish probably eight o'clock or so. And then Mondays were quote unquote our, our day off. But again, if you'd been tardy to things or if they had another reason to punish you, a lot of times what would end up happening was you would, you know, as your punishment, it might be that you had to detail cars for the day or you had to, I don't know, um, rake leaves, which sounds like a weird thing in Florida, but yeah, leaves still fall. Or you'd have to uh, garden or you'd have to volunteer at the food bank. And a lot of times some of the second or third year students would want to encourage us, you know, on our time off to go work at some other cause. So a religiously affiliated homeless shelter or something like this. So the amount of actual time we got off was pretty limited, uh, even when we did have our days off. And that was pretty much the only time a lot of us had also to go shopping, um, to do our laundry, etc.
0: Remy explains a little more about the MC parents he mentioned a bit later. I was surprised that it sounded like a fair amount of time was spent on doing things like manual labour. A former student named Jill Sonstaby wrote of her experiences at the Christchurch Kirkland Masters Commission, where instead of living communally her cohort lived with a local family. Quote, Students were graded weekly by the Christian host family they lived with. This family evaluated our interactions with their family, how we performed the chores we were required to do, the cleanliness of our rooms, if we were sharing our deep heart stuff with them. When these weekly student evaluations came back from the host families with low marks, we would find ourselves in Monday Club. Monday Club was similar to detention. The higher-ups in Master's Commission would dictate what we would be doing to make up for our low marks that week. Sometimes we cleaned church leaders' homes, sometimes we ironed church leaders' clothing, sometimes we tended church leaders' gardens, end quote. An anonymous author writing under An American Christian on Medium recounted, Master's commission was often jokingly called movers' commission because of the amount of time spent moving large and heavy objects for the church or some of its congregants. We were often just an easy source of unpaid labour, especially since it wasn't voluntary.
1: There was a fair amount of that. Um, I mean, theoretically, we were having classes in the morning and classes in the afternoon. Uh, We would have lunch together. But there was a lot of this sort of doing random things. And when I look back on it, I think, you know, what was I what was I doing? Why was I always exhausted? And I'm looking back and I'm thinking, you know, just whenever the church needed help, we were there to help.
0: I asked Remy if he could tell me a little bit more about the classes.
1: The the way that it was supposed to work was that after 2 years you were supposed to have done all of the required courses to officially become ordained as an Assembly of God minister, and so at the beginning we started doing some of those, and so we had ordered these books that that would, there was this arrangement between Masters Commission and this um, online sort of Assembly of God University, and so we started working through these books, and we, you would have to you know do like basically a correspondence school. I mean, this was before online education was a thing. Um, so sometimes the courses would focus on preparing us for those. Sometimes they would be the most random of things like, you know, we're going to talk about, uh, ironically, we're going to talk about how to minister to people in cult groups and how to like debunk their, their thinking about, you know, their erroneous thinking about, you know, their belief systems and the irony of like, oh, we're going to tell you how to get people out of cults. Um <laughs> just so very awkward um, to think about it now with hindsight, right? And sometimes they were really interesting. Sometimes they were like, you know, we're gonna talk about innovative um, thinkers and creativity and the creativity of God. And so we would kind of link, you know, talking about the creation of of the earth and of the universe. And we would link it to sort of people like um, George Lucas or, uh, Walt Disney and how they kind of created these things that we'd never thought of before out of nothing. And some of them were really interesting like that, but a lot of them were focused on, you know, how to convince people that they are, um, that what that we have what they need. There was also a fair bit of service going on outside of the church. So on Saturdays, a lot of times we would go around um we would spend several hours going and knocking on neighbor's doors and uh, around the church and saying, you know, we're from the church, you know, we don't need anything from you. We just wanted you to know that, you know, if you need help with anything, if you need help with gardening, if you need help, like somebody to watch your kid while you run an errand one day or something like that, we're happy to help. And then a lot of times, you know, later in the week, if they said yes, then, you know, in that quote unquote off time, we would be, like watching some random person's kid.
0: As opposed to many of the groups I've looked at for this podcast, it did sound like those in the Masters Commission were doing a lot of selfless work for others and contributing to the community, which was great to hear. There was a mind towards recruitment in it, Remy thinks.
1: Oh, that was 100% the idea. Uh, I think that we were taught, I don't know if these were the words so much, but this idea that, you know, if we serve then people will want to be like us and that, that we're called to serve. And so, you know, you never would, you couldn't imagine saying, this is too much. I'm exhausted. Um, what are we doing? It was just, you know, if God called you to serve, and maybe that meant taking care of, you know, Julia's kid around the corner or something, God called you to do it. So you serve. And the expectation is that by leading and by being welcoming and things, then we'll encourage others as well to to see the light in us and to, you know, come to the church and to break down some of those walls and um, and engage with the community.
0: Another thing that students in the program would do is travel around the country and perform theatre shows at other locations.
1: We would go to other churches Um all over the place. So we went as far as, um, we went to Mardi Gras, which, um, and, and preached on the streets amidst naked people and drunk people, which probably isn't the best use of one's time. Um, we went as far North as New York and a lot of places in between. So New York, just for your context is about a 22 hour drive. um, So the idea was we were going in sometimes churches would host us and then they would try to get us into the public schools. And in the public schools, we couldn't tell anyone that we were religiously affiliated. So the goal was to tell that it was to do some of our theater stuff, get them excited about what we were doing and think, oh, this is cool. This is kind of like live MTV. And then we would invite them to something and we'd be like, oh, we're hosting this thing at this place, which was a church. And then we would kind of coerce them basically. Uh, without saying it was a church um, because you know that that brings in um, issues with religion and schools Uh, and then we would coerce them and then we would preach to them and we would you know kind of try to befriend them and you know look for the people who kind of would be your people so if you're the nerdy one you try to you know find the nerds and talk about something nerdy and get them you know, be friendly with them so that they feel like they would fit in at this church. Meanwhile, then you drive away a couple days later and they never see you again.
0: Romy, tell me a little bit more about the types of shows they would put on.
1: We would kind of put it in um, a guise of saying, like, you know, we want to talk about um, premarital sex slash teenage pregnancy and drug use. And so we would, you know, we would frame it as like a making right choices. And we would talk about the consequences of your actions in the public school And then as soon as, and, and, you know, with, um, there were, there was a scene that involved, um, at one point they were doing something kind of like stomp, which is like with, I don't know if you know stomp, but it's like a percussive group, something like that. Another group, there was a dance group that was doing like, I think it was like destiny's child songs. And like, it was very kitsch from my current point of view, but at the time it was kind of like, oh, these people are doing cool things that we see on TV. Or at least I thought that because, like, I grew up in the bubble of the church.
0: One thing that struck Remy as odd from the outset was the attitude in Master's Commission to students' relationships with their relatives
1: the way that it encouraged us to interact or not with our parents was really peculiar. Um, so when you joined, they created, um, an MC family, they called it MC parents. Um, so master's commission parents. Um, and I lived in the same town as my family, but I've, I'd moved out and I'd lived, uh, in residence with, the, with master's commission. Um, and at one point they said, you know, I would, I would go home, um, to, Do my laundry because you know I lived in a house with uh, three bedrooms and eleven other people, so with one washer and dryer. So I would go home to do my laundry. And at one point, I was told, you know, you're spending too much time with your family. You need to spend time with this family that we've assigned to you. Um, And so I think that was a very. It's one of these things that it seems like if you come from afar and they say, "Oh, your family isn't here. These people would love to help you feel at home." It seems very nice. Until it turns into that, like, oh, you know, you shouldn't be talking to your own family um, and kind of replacing um, your own previous structure sort of with the organisational structure.
0: I wondered what reasons the program could have for wanting to limit students' interactions with their own families, considering they were all a part of the same church.
1: There were a few pieces, I think one odd thing was um if you were with your own family then you were presumably not in a group necessarily of five people um and so then what that meant you were doing i mean you know were you um like did we really know if you were at home maybe um you were off um you know at the library reading something you shouldn't be reading or on a date or you know nobody's watching you um so I think that there's that piece. I also think there's the piece of sort of um I think it I think there was an, an element of fundraising capacity to be completely honest with these MC families that if they felt that you know they were an active part of the program, I mean they were obviously not of the age that they would just give up everything necessarily and join this program. But if they believed that they were part of the program, then they would be more inclined perhaps to give money um, as a way of, it, it seems very nefarious, but I think there were several of these intersecting uh, elements at play.
0: It sounded to me like the students were treated as if they were not at all to be trusted. And I asked Remy whether this was the case.
1: The express reason for saying no groups less than five was really because they didn't want some people dating and then just having one single chaperone because we weren't allowed to date uh, during the first year. And the other thing though was whenever they, they didn't trust us as a starting point. And so I remember times when they would just call us all together randomly in the morning, we'd just be waiting around and somebody would walk in and would say something like, you know, I know that it's, and and would not say this to anyone specifically. And that's what made it just so toxic, but would just come in and say, I know a lot of you think that no one knows what's happening when you're alone, but we know, and you need to get right with God. And it was this way of like, you don't you didn't know who they were talking about. So it could be you, which made you constantly think about, like, oh my God, what did I do? They must be talking about me. And so this manipulation of sort of they don't trust you, and then you can't really trust each other because it makes you think, but I I don't think I did anything, but then who did what? So it's kind of creates this culture of like having to depend on this, like, you know, who we perceive to be this very holy leader because, you know, it, he, he was trying to get us all, keep us all on the right path.
0: Remy told me a bit more about the beliefs and behaviours of those in the Master's Commission program.
1: As I was talking to two of my... Uh, the two of the few people that were in it with me that I've stayed in touch with. Um, We talked a lot about this idea that, uh, so there's this very strict gender um, divide. So women are expected to um, prepare to be godly wives and men in the program were expected to eventually become ministers. Um, And so therefore, by extension, men were the leaders and women were the followers uh, so men a lot of times would be assigned to build things or to take a leadership role in maybe music or uh, I led a puppet team because um, I really like sort of that creative side of things. And I, I enjoyed kids um, quite a lot at the time. Um, but a lot of this idea of um, this gender divide, women, on the other hand, would be expected to work in the nursery Um, take care of uh, the leader's, his name was Dan, the leader's kid. Um, So there was this, there was also a very strong belief system in um, that everyone else was going to hell and that what we should, uh, what we should strive for is really is perfection. Um, And what perfection meant, like none of us could actually achieve perfection of course, I mean, which is logical, I guess, but the problem was like this, the hierarchical structure of, you know, if you had something to offer the organization, any penalty for not being perfect would be less than if they viewed that you didn't have as much to share. Um, And also sort of the way that, you know, the idea was that if any, whatever temptation you have can be overcome with God's help and your determination, which is a very sort of bourgeois attitude, I guess, to say, like, you know, never mind any trauma in your life, never mind, you know, that perhaps you're a queer person, never mind any of these things. Like, it's just willpower.
0: Remy's comment about everyone else going to hell was more about the Assemblies of God members than Master's Commission specifically and there's a much bigger conversation to be had about the importance of religious pluralism in progressive societies. But he also felt that there was a feeling of superiority specific to those in the program.
1: Right. So, yeah, anyone outside of the Assemblies of God belief system, but even within the the Master's Commission, we viewed ourselves as better than everyone else Um, in the sense that we were giving up something for a better good. We were taking time off from the sort of capitalist um and I'm using terminology I guess that resonates with me now, which is a bit harder to imagine a way um, but we sort of believe that you know if you're if you just go to university straight away out of high school, then you're just chasing some economic thing and you're putting You're making money. You're God. And we're not doing that. And we would kind of judge people our age who weren't in master's commission as not as good as us.
0: There was also a kind of status associated with being in the program, which impressed Remy's younger sister at the time.
1: She was pretty young. So she's a decade younger than me. Like, I think for her, I was like a celebrity. People used to ask us for our signatures. It's so crazy to think about. Like, who are we? We're nobody. But I think my sister kind of at the time, you know, like her big brother was a celebrity.
0: Even for those who were brought into the faith, there was still a bit of an us and them mentality from Remy's perspective.
1: People who had like, like we would sort of talk about it as, oh, that, you know, they have, they, they led a sinful life and they finally come to the Lord, but they weren't really, uh, we would never tell them, that we thought negatively of them. But I think a lot of us thought, but if you were really holy, you never would have made those mistakes to begin with. Um, And anyone who struggled, anyone who questioned their faith. So it was also sort of this colonizing of your mind. Like not only could you, like salvation came through faith. And so if you didn't believe, that was just as bad as if you were a terrible sinner. So it doesn't, it, it forced you to not question. And so when you saw people questioning, you thought that person's a sinner, and you organized them within a hierarchy of sin, of that is somewhere, you know, uh, it's not only their actions, it's also this, you know, th- the, the capacity to reflect that is a uh, transgression.
0: Under an American Christian, The author wrote on Medium that in Master's Commission, one of the rules was, All authority was God-ordained, and you were to obey as if it were God. This included the leadership team in the program and the church. They continued, Since all authority was considered to be God-ordained, to question anyone in leadership about any rule, unwritten or not, was akin to questioning God himself. The thing that struck me about this organisation in particular that appears to make it less of a cult is that there's a clear path to exit. You complete the courses and then you're done. That wasn't how it always worked, though. One of the better-known accounts of Masters commission as a cult experience is from a former member named Lisa Kerr, who maintained a blog called My Cult Life for a number of years. Although the blog is now defunct, Lisa shared her story across a number of publications, And for her, once she'd been through the program, she went on to plant new ministries by building more Master's Commissions around the country. She was groomed to be a good pastor's wife, and taught not to trust her own rebellious nature. Lisa wrote for HuffPost, quote, Almost immediately, the Master's Commission disciples had me convinced that, by joining them, I would be joining an elite group of soldiers for Christ that would change the world by drawing people closer to God. As soldiers, we would go to the ends of the earth using any means necessary to bring people to salvation. Within weeks, I submitted my life to their cause and gave up my dreams to follow theirs. I'm uncertain whether Remy just didn't have the sort of personality or some might think it ego that would allow for setting up a high-demand program of his own. But he found himself abandoned at the end of his courses.
1: Yeah, so what I did when I left, um, and I've talked to two other people, um, so what I did was I went to Latin America for a year and I worked, um, building, starting up one of these programs there, which is really hard for me to think about and to stomach. Um, and, but the expectation is that you go into the ministry and the reality was as soon as I left, you know, they had promised me, they said, you know, we believe in In your work, we believe that you're going to set up this one with, you know, with other people. It wasn't just me embarking on my own, but they said, you know, we believe in you. We're going to give you financial support and everything, which I then counted on. And as soon as I got off the plane, no one would answer my phone calls. Nobody sent checks. It was just like, there was no sort of emotional support. There was none of the, of what they had promised. It was just sort of like, okay, we're done with you now. And that is actually what the two other people I talked to both sort of articulated, like, you know, they just drop you, like, good luck, you know, deal with your, you know, we've given you all of this institutionalized structure your whole life, you know, for the last couple of years around everything in your life, like, good luck.
0: Lisa Kerr had an FAQ page on her My Cult Life blog, and one of the questions was, but you have to hear my story about attending Master's Commission or Mercy Ministries, etc. My group was different. They're not all like that, I swear. Lisa's answer included the following. I spent several years in Master's Commission and worked for the Master's Commission International Network, MCIN. I planned conferences with Lloyd Ziegler's teams and know the ins and outs of many of the groups that existed during 1998 to 2005 because of my position within the MCIN. Because of that, I feel qualified to speak about Master's Commission with more authority than most. Lisa finished her answer with this. I do not endorse any Master's Commission program. If a student slash staff member devoted seven years of her life to an organisation and says that, perhaps it's something worth looking into. There's a Reddit thread from November 2020 that asks whether the Masters Commission is the most organised, well-funded, fastest-growing thought reform scheme in America. One of the respondents compares it to Scientology's Sea Org. Another writes, I knew a lot of people in this program at one point. The Church used them like cheap labour under the guise of learning ministry. The first-year students weren't allowed to talk to members of the opposite gender. They weren't allowed to listen to secular music. They were often extremely sleep-deprived from late hours spent setting up for church services and events. They were used to funnel graduating high school students into the program. A lot of them were wonderful, beautiful people who really wanted to make people's lives better. Many of them became disenfranchised with the church, but a few of them went on to be pastors. I'd sent Remy the three criteria that I used to define a cult for Let's Talk About Sects and a quick reminder that it's a pretty nebulous concept that means different things to different people. Groups like QAnon are showing an evolution in some of these definitions, which is something I hope to explore further sometime soon. But I put these criteria to Remy and asked him if he could expand on whether and to what extent the operations of his master's commission fit with them. As he mentioned earlier, his leader had been a man named Dan.
1: So for the charismatic leader part, um, Dan was absolutely that. He was dynamic. Um, you know, he would jump into a room. He would capture everyone's attention. He would. He had enough people who would do exactly what he wanted and thought exactly the way he thought. That any of us who questioned or wondered at any moment in time, which I did, um, and I've always kind of questioned things, um, even within this structure immediately it was back to him back to oh but he says it's right we've got to do it he's got this vision he's leading us um I think it's also the closely the close control thing is you know when I was talking to um one of these people the other day um one of the things I said is you know is is I said you know I'm going on this podcast and talking about Master's Commission being a cult. And she says, do you think it was really a cult? And I said, listen, and I started going through these criteria. And I I said, he controlled how much we slept. Like we were constantly, you know, if we slept too much, he would walk in and wake people up. You know, if you came in late because you weren't feeling well, I was literally at one point vomiting on the floor of the bathroom and he guilted me into getting on an airplane to go to Phoenix for the big, Uh, event where I laid in a hotel bed and like just with a huge crazy fever and was sick the whole time. So the level of control um, was insane.
0: The person writing under An American Christian detailed on Medium, quote, one of the more cruel policies was called crawl in, don't call in. This was a reference to coming in when you were sick, no matter what was wrong, instead of calling in. After you arrived, the leadership would determine whether you were ill enough to make it through the day. According to them, most people weren't sick. They were just tired and wanted more sleep. In four years, not once was I allowed to go home, no matter how sick I was. The writer also shares a disturbing story of a young woman who ended up in hospital with pneumonia. Only after her host mother insisted that she seek treatment after days of her being pressured to continue attending the program, through high fevers and total exhaustion. Mental health was not spared from this attitude.
1: At one point I had gone to see, before I went to Dominican Republic, I, I went and saw a, a psychologist and they said, you know, you're, you're too stressed. Um, and this was to make sure that I was ready for this, you know, to move and everything. And they said He said, you're too stressed. And I went back and I told Dan, I said, listen, you know, I, I went to the church headquarters in, in um, Missouri. And, you know, as part of this before I left process, they said, you know, we want you to see a psychologist. And, and he said, I'm too stressed. And Dan said, well, are you going to listen to him? or Are you going to listen to God?
0: At the blog, Lefty in her right mind, an anonymous author recorded some thoughts about her two years in a master's commission. She was diagnosed by a psychiatrist during her time there with major depression and PTSD. Quote, Now, I actually agree with those diagnoses, but not because I had a problem or because I was crazy. It was because of the traumatic experience I lived on a daily basis. The second criteria I've been using for this show is around a group believing that they have exclusive access to the truth and the rest of the world is wrong. And the third is about levels of secretiveness.
1: The issue of the access to the truth, uh, absolutely, the larger assemblies of God has has a belief system, um, that, that does suggest that, um, they have the exclusive access to the truth, um, and that the rest of the world is wrong. Um, but within master's commission, it's sort of this extra level of, you know, there's very little capacity for grace, uh, for mercy, for forgiveness, even though they say that there is endless capacity for mercy and for forgiveness. Um, you know, when, when the way that you structure your belief system is to shame people who seek forgiveness, it kind of, you know, makes you wonder if that's what they believe. Um, and, And our entire purpose was to go and convert people and to convince them. And, you know, growing up with the assemblies of God belief system and then moving into sort of this, this exaggerated form of master's commission. I mean, I truly believed that, uh, Anglicans and Catholics and Baptists were going to hell. It didn't matter that they were all Christians. It was, they weren't the right ones. And I don't know how much, I think, you know, having grown up in the Assemblies of God and moved into this, it's hard sometimes for me to separate what part of the belief system might be Assemblies of God and what might have been sort of expounded upon or controlled more through Master's Commission. But, Um, the secretive piece, um, this is, this, I had to think a bit about this one and the way that I kind of remember the organization and the way that, um, I was helped to remember it by the two people that I talked to, um, was that we were portrayed as holy to everyone within the Assemblies of God Church and beyond. Um, but within, we were constantly told that we were sinners. We were constantly shamed. We were constantly led to believe that people knew secrets about us, that they were holding over us. Um, we were threatened. We were told that some people weren't good enough. I was told that um, by somebody who had had a crush on me uh, that you know, she went to Dan and Dan said, oh no, you don't want that one and there's sort of is this there's this deep shame and this deep hierarchy within the the masters commission that no one outside can see because then they'll call into question our holiness and i think also when you look at the way that you know the sleep deprivation the way of controlling like things like that um eating together think all of these things you know had a sort of were designed to create a dependency. And I think that most people outside of the organization, even within the assemblies of God, you know, if you if you put to them the amount of hours that people worked, and you really said, let's look at, you know, the health, let's look at the at the tools that we're providing and all of these things, I think even within the assemblies of God, there's a lot of people who would say, you know, maybe we need to to think about this. And so You know, I don't think anyone knew that we regularly couldn't sleep or that we would be harassed if we were sick or all of these things. And a lot of us would fall asleep even during our morning prayers because we were so exhausted, and then we would be shamed. But I think the manipulation tactics were not things that most uh, non-Masters Commission uh, Assemblies of God members would be aware of.
0: Sleep deprivation and keeping people so busy that they don't have much time to think are both aspects of cultic behaviours that we've discussed regularly on this podcast.
1: A lot of times we wouldn't get, be completely done with the day until 10. And then we would have to be up at seven the next morning. And keep in mind, we hadn't had dinner. We hadn't, like, within all of that, there's dinner, there's shower, there's breakfast, there's laundry, there's cleaning the house, there's all of these sort of pieces that need to fit within that nine hour window. Um and there was there were 12 of us living in a three bedroom house. So there's only so fast you can take showers, right? So it was it was pretty consistent that I mean they were long days, they were exhausting days.
0: An American Christian wrote on Medium that we would pray for supernatural strength while we tried not to pass out from pure exhaustion. They continued, "The desire to prove ourselves ad nauseum despite the mental and physical toll was baneful." students often experienced some form of a breakdown for which they were also punished. The many hours of unpaid labour that go on within high-demand organisations are also something that's come up a lot on this show, as long-time listeners will know.
1: I really believe that has to be some secretive element because I really think that there, there's legislation that kind of must play into that if they were more transparent with it. um. But I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert on that. But it just seems like there's got to be some level of secrecy around, you know, concretely, like, who are your janitors? And or who are, you know, like, why is no one paid to clean this giant place?
0: A reminder that we're talking about churches that preach the prosperity gospel here, rather than those that might struggle to stretch their funding. Remy also had some thoughts on the types of people who were generally recruited into Master's Commission.
1: I think it seeks out people who feel the need to be perfect and to prove themselves to the church. I think when I look back on the people who didn't join um, and just you know what I thought about them, aside from the judgment, before, you know, the memories I have of them before this circus pulled into town, let's say, I think a lot of the people who opted not to join were healthy in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of us, when I look at who did join, and this is a generalization. I mean, there were healthy people who joined I'm sure, and there were unhealthy people who didn't, but I think a lot of us went because we had abuse in our lives. Um, my father was pretty abusive to me and I think in a different way, my mother as well. Um, um, not as intentionally as my father. Um, and you know when i talked to these two people the other day like one of them told me that you know she'd been abused by um by a youth minister and you know, the, the both of them said that i can share pieces of their story so um it she said you know she had been abused by a youth minister and so she went into it seeking something seeking relief from that trauma in some way. The other person said that she'd been had 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 a pretty abusive relationship with her parents and she joined the church um before joining Masters Commission she joined the church despite her parents really they weren't supportive um but she joined as a teenager and uh and then moved into Masters Commission later on. And so I think that it feeds on those of us who want to have the answers. Uh, where we feel like, you know, we were told that things were supposed to work out well for us. We want someone to tell us what to do to make it work. Um, And I think, you know, it feeds off of people who seek out that charisma and want something exciting and don't know what to do with their life at the time. Um, And then I think that once you're in, it creates this belief in yourself that you're just a sinful, disgusting person and that you know, your secrets will find you out. And it's just, that was the constant fear. And it didn't matter what the sin was. Like I wasn't quote unquote sinning at the time, but the idea that somebody could think that I was gay and tell someone else, even though I hadn't done anything, it was the thought was terrifying. And then it, it just, as you, when you leave after that, how do you develop healthy connections with people when you've spent years of your life thinking that everyone around you is watching you and going to tattle on you or that they're judging you or that you're not good enough? And both of the people I talked to and I, we all were in really unhealthy relationships after that. So I think it sort of predisposes you to, seek out controlling relationships to because that's what you know is like you know you're you're encouraged to let go of control and you're not given any tools to figure out how to be healthy so then when you leave of course you're giving up control again because that's what you know
0: There's a change.org petition with over one thousand seven hundred signatures at the time of writing this episode entitled Demand Assemblies of God to take a stand against Jean Mayo's Abuse. Quote We are asking that the Assemblies of God Headquarters acknowledge the abuse that took place in a program affiliated with the Assemblies of God Masters Commission. The petition relates to a former Masters Commission in Atlanta that got shut down in june twenty twenty due to sexual misconduct allegations against its director. Jordan Marcon. Following the shutdown, a private Facebook group was created. From the petition page again, quote, Within a few days, the group had over 500 members and hundreds of stories outlining the spiritual abuse, bullying, hazing, racism and misconduct they endured during their time there at the hands of either Jean Mayo herself or other staff members. It also became evident that several previous staff and alumni had approached Jean Mayo directly with accusations of sexual misconduct by Jordan Marcon, dating back as early as 2007. In story after story, the people that brought these things to Jean's attention were ostracised from the culture and labelled troublemakers, often resulting in their dismissal from the program or termination from the organisation shortly after. End quote. This could indicate a lack of accountability at just one master's commission. But you place this alongside Remy's experiences and the stories shared from other programs, and you might start to worry that the problems could be more endemic. Lisa Kerr wrote on her My Cult Life website that after she had left, she sent eight pages of suggestions and complaints to MCIN founder Lord Ziegler and the Board of Directors in 2008. When she found the response unsatisfactory, particularly with regards to unpaid internships, she cut off contact and continued to blog. Quote, I consider my writing almost a responsibility to prevent future cases of abuse, misrepresentation, and exploitation. I also consider Master's Commission to be a physically and mentally harmful environment. End quote. Remy's former Master's Commission leader Dan, who was married with a child, eventually fell from grace due to a sexual relationship with a student. In Remy's second year of the program, three people left, two women who had been having a lesbian relationship and one man whose girlfriend became pregnant. Looking back now, Remy wonders if some of those people could have been having the healthiest relationships of all, but were put through so much shame for them. Remy had been struggling since childhood with his own sexuality, within the expectations of his church. And this is what eventually led to him breaking from the Masters Commission.
1: So I had known since I was a kid um, that I was attracted to guys. Um, I wasn't. I didn't embrace the idea. Um, and I think this was probably the most traumatic aspect of Masters Commission. And then subsequently, the I, I was when I was in Latin America, um, I, I left the church uh, almost immediately upon actually really immediately upon returning to the States. Um, but it was this constant story of if you, you know, with God, you can do anything. And this is actually really hard to to talk about, but um, one of the things, there's a Bible verse that says, you know, if your hand offends you, you should cut it off. And, the number of times that I would just cry and I knew that I couldn't fall in love with a woman. I wasn't interested in that. And I knew that there was nothing I could do about it because I had prayed for years. I mean, since I was like 12. Um, And the number of times I thought about mutilating myself because I thought it would be better than being gay. And I think ultimately, that's what led to me leaving was recognizing that that I couldn't I couldn't live that lie anymore and I didn't know I mean you know growing up in the context I grew up in I kind of thought that I'd probably be lonely and you know catch HIV someday and die but I just felt like I just wanted to die all the time when I was in. And so I think that, you know, given those two options, you know, it, there was a lot, there were many years of just true exhaustion, fighting from my against myself and denial of who I was and belief that the very person that I was was evil. Um, At some point, like I I said, you know, I have to leave or I'm going to die. And I did. And it was not easy.
0: I asked Remy about the impact of having to leave behind all the people he knew and loved to start a new life.
1: I don't think I will ever get over that, actually. I I still struggle a lot, um, and I, I am working with a therapist and have worked with many therapists over the years, but I don't know how to meet people and how to trust people and how to build healthy social relationships. Um, like, the entire all of my formative years was me being the person that I needed to be so that people would accept me. And, you know, even into any sphere where I move, I still feel that need and I feel shy or scared, or I feel like, you know, eventually people will find me out and they'll find out that I'm not blank enough for the group. So I'm not environmental enough. I'm not queer like politics enough i'm not smart enough i'm not whatever it is and i think that that has just followed me um and i think that's really like the most i think i've heard that from a lot of other people too um maybe m- more so people who grew up in cult situations is this idea that you know there was no previous you to go back to and so How do you know what you want? Can you know what you want? Is it okay to want? Like all of those things I think are just, I don't know. I've been out for what, like 15 years now, I guess. And maybe, oh gosh, more than that. Um, Like 18 years. And it's, I still don't know. And it sucks.
0: At the blog, Lefty in her right mind. Of the aftermath of her two years in a master's commission, the author wrote, To this day I still struggle with a lot of the repercussions of my experience in master's, and I do have mild PTSD that has improved. It affects my relationships with others because there's an inherent distrust that I struggle to move past. I still struggle with forcing myself to rest and not drive myself to the point of exhaustion. I still have to tell myself that rest and rejuvenation is okay.
1: And I think another thing that a lot of us, uh, the reality for a lot of us is that our partners can't ever understand. And I think that's really hard. Um, You can tell them, but it's not the same. And it does, you know, I mean, my partner is amazing and so supportive, but it's just like every piece of when every piece of your life is so controlled and your concept of self is so controlled it's like no one else will ever understand that I think unless they've lived through it Um, which is why I think it's really important um, like this type of podcast and there's some others that have been really helpful because I see that you know other people have lived through this and it it's easy to feel really alone Um, especially in the types of circles that I move in now like you don't hear people talking about this a lot, and so it's easy to feel like, oh my God, everyone's gonna think I'm weird and that I'm crazy and like, yeah, like I have been through a lot of weird stuff, but so have other people.
0: The author writing under An American Christian shared another student's experience in 2004 at the Generation Training Centre, which was the renamed Lewis County Master's Commission. At election time, students were told to bring their ballots in, and those who weren't registered to vote were supplied with voter registration cards. They were all supervised as they were instructed to follow the pastor's recommendations on how to vote for the Republican Party. Donald Trump's support amongst evangelical Christians in the USA is well documented, and Remy had an interesting perspective on this.
1: Well, and I tell people that, you know, if I wasn't a queer person, I probably would be one of these, you know, Trump supporters because I wouldn't have ever had to reflect and think about things differently, which is also quite tragic to think that that could have been my reality.
0: An American Christian also shared an email from his former pastor dated the 9th of July 2009 and addressed to the church that said, quote, The hate crimes bill is due to be passed any time this week or early next. We must make our voice heard. If this passes, it will seriously limit any comments that I or any pastor would make from the pulpit regarding homosexuality as a sin. Remy had had his own internalized homophobia as a result of the belief system he was born into. And it didn't only impact himself. I want to end today on Remy's reflections about why he's telling his story now and how it's not an easy thing to do.
1: Like, I believed those things about myself and I believe them about other people. And I grew up in this society and I identify now as, like, a very radical, like, queer person and I you know, advocate very actively and visibly for the rights of trans people and the rights of other queer people. And there's this profound embarrassment that I feel for the way that um, the things that I believed and the harm that I did. Uh, And that's kind of led to me burying a lot of this for a long time. And your podcast really helped me realize that a lot of other people have gone through these things, too. And that other people need to know that like, just because you're trying to fight for the rights of people now doesn't mean that you had it easy and doesn't like from that perspective doesn't mean that you just grew up where it was okay. Like some of us had to fight really hard to get to the place where we could fight for other people. We had to fight against ourselves and we had to fight against abusers who just, you know, for whatever reason, convinced us of our inferiority. And I think especially having lived so long in Canada in spaces like Montreal and Toronto where it's very safe to be out and it's very safe to be who you are um, visibly and not visibly and with friends. And it's just very, I feel like this is kind of a second coming out for me. It's like, you know, coming out of Master's Commission and saying, you know, I'm a queer person I wasn't sure how people were going to react and I wasn't sure how people would, you know, who I would lose. And I feel like, you know, in the queer spaces that I move in, I'm also, there's a a level of fear that like telling my story and, you know, saying I caused a lot of harm is also scary in the same way. Just, I think the end goal is to help people. I don't think it's easy for anyone, but I definitely think when you're taught for so long not to be your own person... Like to be able to take ownership of things and to tell your story when it comes with so much guilt and shame and embarrassment, I think is, for some of us, it's taken a lot to get there.
0: Almost at the start of this episode, I have a couple of pieces of news for you. The first is that I've just signed a book contract and will be spending the next year or so writing about so many of the things I've learned from making this project. From the incredible survivors, researchers and journalists who've shared their experiences and knowledge with me. I'm very excited about this and can't wait to bring you more news as I work on the book. If you'd like to stay in the lube, best thing to do is sign up to the LTAS e-newsletter via the website at ltaspod.com. The other news is that LTAS composer Joe Gould is currently working on a soundtrack album to collect his work into selected full-length tracks that make for a rich listening experience. I can't wait to bring you more news on that one too. You can access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon – patreon.com/ltaspod or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. In between seasons, my Patreon supporters will be helping me write a book this year, and I'm hugely grateful to them. Even a dollar a month helps. I don't ever want to make episodes of this podcast exclusive, as I believe the stories need to be heard as far and wide as possible. But supporters do get early release and ad-free episodes, updates from me, and some other fun perks in the mail. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was researched and written by me, Sarah Steele. Music was by Joe Gould. Thanks to Corey Green of Transducer Audio for editing. A very special thanks to Remy Attig for sharing his story with me. Information sources are listed on the episode page at ltaspod.com. Thanks again to Audio Technica, presenting partner for Season 4 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out their stuff. Their range of earphones and headphones is quite ridiculous, from true wireless to noise cancelling to professional studio, and they're known for some of the best sound around. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult, or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. Thanks for joining me and hope to catch you again next episode. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do